central banks are a tremendous danger. They are all heads of a criminal organization. Danger. Democratic states are deterioration. The democratic equality before the law is something completely incompatible with the idea of one universal law applying to every person in exactly the same way. Everyone can become king, so to speak. Jose Galison, you're watching No Way Jose. You can find me on the No Way Jose YouTube channel, all the major audio podcatchers, and Aussie as well. Credit to Romero Synth, that's the name of his YouTube channel. Uh, I'm not sure if he distributes that on other uh, on other platforms or not. That's the guy who did that. Uh, all these Hoppa intros we've been doing for this live reading series of Democracy of the God That Fails. Uh, with that, I just let you guys know what the topic is today, if you haven't were capable of reading the title. And with that, my guest today is Toad. Uh, do you want to go through the rigmarole of the whole paywall thing? I'm no longer doing the public live streams. My live streams are only for my patrons, except for when I do like Four Pony Boys or you know maybe some rare occasion. But pretty much just gonna be Four Pony Boys. That'll be the uh, won't be behind the paywall. But uh, pretty much all my other content is gonna have a private live stream, and then roughly about a week or a week or so later, it'll go up publicly. Uh, so like this content right here, that that falls under that. Um, uh, if you want to be a patron, you have to be patreon.com. So that's no way Jose 2020 is where you need to go. Uh, the lowest level is two bucks. That gives you access to be able to watch the episodes while they're not public. Uh, there are other levels to give you other perks. The highest level being 20. The 20 is my sponsors. My sponsors are Mikel Thorpe of the Expat Money Show. He's your guy if you want to get the hell out of Dodge. I also have Jeremy who has an Etsy store at etsy.com slash shop slash Raising Liberty. You can follow him on Twitter at Jimmy Rhymes. And then also, my guest today, Toad, uh, of Tower Gang is what we are now. No, I keep screwing up and saying Tower Power, but we have rebranded to Tower Gang. And if you guys aren't aware, the Tower Gang will be going on TimCast on January 17th. Granted, we haven't been disinvited by then. So, uh, but that, that won't be me or Toad. Me or Toad will probably make the next roundabout if they let us come on again. Uh, but yeah, with that, uh, follow Toad at TPH underscore Toad. Or you can, and you can also follow me and uh, Toad's show that we do with Reed, Clint, Top Lobster and Fat Dave, uh, Tower Gang. That's every Wednesday at 9-11. We do that on YouTube. It's on Odyssey. Those are the two places the live stream goes out. 
Uh, but then we redistribute it later. I think we're we should be streaming to the Rumble soon once we meet the, meet the minimum for uh, for live streamers. Total coming in second less now. So if you want to be able to uh, uh, get be able to follow us on Rumble, please go to Rumble. Go do that. That way we can start live streaming there. We'd appreciate it. But as I was getting to, we also distribute it on all the major audio podcatcher platforms lately, specifically Spotify, where we do video. We do really well in video on uh, Spotify because of the video aspect. It's definitely a show that plays better to to. Uh, the video and uh we haven't got nuked off spotify we've got nuked off youtube so uh but yeah those are your options for that uh who else, who else I, got? I feel like i'm forgetting somebody I don't, no i think that's it uh also top lobster use uh jose at checkout for uh to get 10 percent off at toplobster.com he has my merch tower gang merch liberty lockdown merch naturalist capitalist merch other shows merch he also has stuff that's not show related highly suggest go check him out he's he's the guy uh with that let's go ahead and get to it in here What's up, man? What's up? Hey, how was uh, how was your um, how was your Christmas, bud? It was pretty good. How was yours? It was alright. It's alright. Can't complain. Um, I mean, I got a little bit of scotchy scotch, so uh, it's yeah. my uh, favorite cheap scotch right here, the Dimple Pinch. Yeah. So, you got more of that as a gift? Yeah, I got it for a gift. Yeah, I'm, I'm good with right. it. That's that's all I care about. I got other stuff, but I don't know. I'm a simple man. I don't really, if anything, I don't really care. Like, I don't know. A simple kind of man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah Christmas was good. I, I got uh, stuff uh, for around the house because I had some stuff that needed to be replaced, like uh, some automatic soap dispensers and plates and stuff. So it's nice. It's the adult thing, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. This is why you need a woman. This is weird. <laughs> 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 well, I mean, good for you for keeping the house in order, I guess. Uh, but uh, yeah, you uh, you excited to get into this today? I feel like there's something else I want to ask. You. Oh yeah, the Rumble thing. What's the deal with Tower? Are we are we able to live oh, yeah. stream there yet or not? Yeah, well, and, and I'm at Tower Gang Toad now. By the way, not TPH Toad oh. because we we rebranded. I rebranded oh. myself. Um, Rumble. Uh, we need to have a hundred subscribers on there to be able to live stream to it, and I think we're somewhere in the 60s right now. So people need to get on that. It's uh, Rumble.com/slash/TowerGangPod, I believe. Yeah, we just like um, just made the rumble not too long ago. So. It's in the link tree and whatever. Uh, yeah, I think yeah. Tower Game Pod. I think we have a website now. I think Top grabbed uh, the domain. It just links to the link tree right now. So that's uh, TowerGamePod.com. So you can go there as well. Everything's Tower Game Pod now for the most part. Well, hell yeah. All right, man. Let's go ahead and get into it. We're on another chapter today. We're on democracy redistribution and the destruction of property. Uh, this should be. We'll knock this whole chapter out in this episode. It's only like eleven pages. So uh, yeah, we'll get on to a secession next week. That'll be uh, or the next episode. So let's get into it, man. All right. Imagine a world government democratically elected according to the principle of one man, one vote on a worldwide scale. What would the predictable outcome of an election be? Most likely we would get a Chinese Indian coalition government. And what would this government most likely decide to do in order to satisfy its supporters and be reelected? The government would probably find that the so-called Western world had gone had far too much wealth and the rest of the world, in particular, China and India, far too little and that a systematic wealth and income redistribution would be necessary. Or imagine that in your own country, the right to vote were expanded to seven-year-olds. While the government would not likely be staffed of children, its policies would most definitely reflect the legitimate concerns of children to have adequate and equal, equal access to free French fries, lemonade, and videos. Yeah, so that last uh, line there, uh, or last uh, couple of lines, that's like one of the famous, I know that's one of the ones that uh, gets quoted a lot from this book from Hoppe about the seven-year-olds. If the right to vote was expanded, of course, they would be voting for more and more childish things. Although uh, I think what we see is that even just with expanding the right to vote as much as we have to this point, you still have, and with the, you know, sort of, the uh just the fact that kind of everybody in this type of system becomes more childish in a way you get uh that type of voting anyway even if it's not expanded to the youngest of children so i think that's kind of an interesting uh point as well there and then yeah the other thing he's kind of getting at is a point that tom woods i know likes to make the redistribution thing where uh people within the u.s that are proponents of redistribution of wealth they're always just focusing on well we need to redistribute that wealth to the poor within the u.s but they never think about expanding that to the world worldwide because if they did that would mean that even like the poorest people in the u.s pretty much are richer than 
people that are in third world countries. So you'd be redistributing uh, the wealth like out of the U.S. into all these other countries. And nobody wants to uh, actually agree to that and take their uh, ideology, I guess, or take that argument to its logical conclusion. So Yeah, and it's funny because a lot of people would probably point out, oh, well, that's absurd. That's just ridiculous. Like, well, one, that's the point. This is a uh, device, a logical device called reductio ad absurdum. Right. And the whole point is to bring it to its logical end and to be able to display the the lack of fundamentals in this concept and where it can go. And then a lot of people are like, oh, well, it's not going to end up like that. Well, I mean, it kind of – I mean, yeah, it may not end up ultimately to the point where seven-year-olds are voting. Likely the system would probably capsize before then. But the idea being is that the incentives are in place for it to go that way. And it's honestly actually not that ridiculous. I may even get into in, in this chapter. I'm not sure if it uses – because I don't know if there were early when this was written in like round 2000-ish any uh, real-world uh, uh, things to point to. But there definitely have been uh, instances as of late where they push for like 16-year-old voting and like – um, yeah. and, like we all know like when – especially when it comes to something like age of voting, it's, it's incredibly subjective like – yeah, you can go what we consider an adult by laws, generally speaking, which is 18. But even then you have 21. And it's like, okay, well, are they really fully developed at 21? And then like, I yeah. mean, like we would advocate if, you, if you're if you going to have to, if you have to have democracy, maybe make it as restrictive as possible uh, if that's like your only option. But um, generally speaking, democracy, the way it, it operates is over time, it will naturally degrade to being full democracy because that's the way the incentives align. So. Yeah. So, all right, with these thought experiments in mind, there can be no doubt about the consequences consequences which resulted from the process of democratization that began in Europe and the U.S. in the second half of the 19th century and has come to fruition since the end of World War I. The successive expansion of the franchise and finally the establishment of universal adult suffrage within each, uh, did within each country what a world democracy would do for the entire globe is set in motion a seemingly permanent tendency toward wealth and income redistribution. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if there's anything really to add to that, although maybe we should say uh, that in the previous, on the previous page there, right at the opening, the reason why he was saying that uh, it would be China and India is because those are the two uh, highest population countries. So. Exactly. And it kind of puts on a full display how this works when you, especially when you scale, the more you scale it up, the more fucked up it is, essentially. Yeah. I believe at the beginning of this book, he pointed out that like democracy would be maybe in smaller villages or something like that be somewhat functional. But that's because you're in such a localized area. You're, you're, you have more control over it. You know each other. Whereas in a something like a state, a nation or a world, it gets it gets way more abstract and uh and way more about the mob of the majority. Right. Pretty right. much everything decentralized is going to be better than centralization. So, yeah. One man, one vote combined with free entry into government democracy implies that every person and his personal property comes within reach of and is up for grabs by everyone else. A tragedy of the commons is created. It can be expected that majorities of have nots will relentlessly try to enrich themselves at the expense of minorities of haves. This is not to say that there will be only one class of have-nots and one class of haves, and that the redistribution will occur uniformly from the rich onto the poor. To the contrary, while the redistribution from rich to poor will always play a prominent role, it would be a a sociological blunder to assume that it will be the sole or even the predominant form of redistribution. After all, the permanently rich and the permanently poor are usually rich or poor for a reason. The rich are characteristically bright and industrious, and the poor typically dull, uh, dull, lazy, or both. It is not very likely that dullards, even if they make up a majority, will systematically outsmart and enrich themselves at the expense of a minority of bright and energetic individuals. Rather, most redistribution will will take place within the group of the non-poor and frequently will actually be the better off who succeed in having themselves subsidized by the worse off. Consider, for example, the almost universal practice of offering a free university education, whereby the working class, whose children rarely attend universities, pay through taxation for the education of middle-class children. Moreover, it can be expected that there will be many competing groups and coalitions trying to gain at the expense of others. There will be various changing criteria defining what it is that makes one person a have, deserving to be looted, and another a have-not, deserving to receive the loot. At the same time, individuals will be members of a multitude of groups of haves and or have-nots. 
losing on account of one of their characteristics and gaining on account of another, with some individuals ending up net losers and other net winners of redistribution. Which is funny, like, the, mm. at the end, he's very much almost borderline exactly saying, like, uh, I guess, like, identity politics, you know, like, we all joke about, like, oh, well, he's gay, queer, trans, uh, you know, one-legged, whatever the fuck, and then you get into this weird, abstract nonsense of, you know, victimhood, essentially. Right, and these are all, yeah, things that he's brought up uh, previously in uh, the book as well. Um, yeah, and he's making the point that it's not just redistribution from the rich to the poor. There are all these different uh, like class dynamics that get set up, if you want to call it that, uh, which, as you're saying, it's almost kind of uh, pointing out the fact that you kind of get this like cultural Marxism type of thing going on, where you have yeah certain... Um, like classes that are favored over others. And some of it could just be based on identity. Yeah. I mean, one of the best examples he pointed out there was uh, the college one. That's one thing that most people mm. don't look at that way. Like, it, yeah. like, yes, sure. If you just have your headset in this uh, Marxist class dynamic where you're thinking uh, have and have not, you kind of miss it. But the thing is with something like, with like something like college, like he pointed out, typically the poors don't go uh, to college. And typically the middle class to rich go. But right. for some reason we have created this tax system where poor people subsidize upper middle class kids going to college. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. And he's pointing out that, yeah, like just the way the system is set up overall, there's a tendency for uh, less mobility between these classes as well. And people that are poor sort of tend to, tend to stay poor. People, uh, it's harder to become like one of the uh, halves, I guess, and like kind of enter into that more uh, like the richer classes. Um, yeah. I don't know. I think also the point he was getting to is uh, kind of the idea that a, the halves tend to be generally speaking, people of more or more well-to-do there tend to be generally mm -hmm. smarter, more, you know, these type of attributes. Um right. And so they're going to be a more effective unit, even though they're a smaller mm -hmm. unit. Whereas he points out the pores, like, yes, there will always be some aspect of redistribution that goes on there. He's saying, don't count that out, but also don't just immediately assume it's only, you know, like just a state, straight up welfare type thing because, or at least to the, from the, the haves, the have nots, because the, somewhat the point he's getting at to is they're not very effective at coalition since they tend to not be, I don't know, tend to not have their life together. Like, let's be real. If you're a, yeah. a poor, you probably don't have your life together. I mean, I feel like I'm skirting around this to not be mean. But generally speaking, if you're poor, like, you know, like I think by definition, things aren't going well. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, yeah. And, you know, of course, the government does want to set up a situation where uh, those people become welfare dependent. So they really, like, can't get out of that state and they're disincentivized from sort of trying to do so as well. And they're just going to kind of remain there. And then uh, you wind up kind of with this elimination of the middle class. And then you do still have the other situation where you have the people that are uh, the pol like politically connected, kind of the wealthier class are using the system to enrich themselves as well at the expense of the others. So all of that is going on. And yeah, with he brings up like the college thing where you have working class people are winding up having to subsidize uh children's college for some of the uh, people that are better off. And you'll also have a situation with the public uh, education system where you have people that like, say like old people who have already had children, their children have already gone to school and whatever. And now everything costs more than it did then. And they're having to subsidize current people's children, even though they've already sent their children off to school like a while ago. Uh, you know, they might not have as much money at this point because of the way that the system is at this point where you can't really retire anymore. You know, Social Security is BS. So you have you know these rich people that don't really or sorry, these old people that don't really have a lot of money. And they're like having to subsidize uh, people's children going to school now when like they're already past that point in their life where they had to do that for their children. So, yeah. All right. Uh, on to you now. Um. Did you both? Uh, did you do that uh, full paragraph there? I don't even know. Uh, I think you're at the recognition. I All right, believe. yeah. The recognition of democracy as a machinery of popular wealth and income redistribution 
in conjunction with one of the most fundamental principles in all of economics, that one will end up getting more of whatever it is that is being subsidized provides the key to understanding the present age. That is the, just to reemphasize it, I don't think we really need to comment on it. You will end up getting more of whatever is being subsidized. Very simple. Mm-hmm. It's, it, I mean, when you think about it, you realize it's kind of like a no shit but if you do apply this to economics, especially, you know, in, in, in the context of a government, it'll, it's, it starts, it's, for some reason, it's a key component most people don't think of when they think of how this yeah. works. But, yeah, you'll get less of something that's being, like, penalized or fined, and you'll get more of something that's being subsidized in yep. general. Yes. All redistribution, regardless of the criterion on which it is based, involves taking from the original owners and or producers, the havers of something, and giving to non-owners and non-producers, the non-havers of something. The incentive to be an original owner or producer of the thing in question is reduced, and the incentive to be a non-owner and non-producer is raised. Accordingly, as a result of subsidizing individuals because they are poor, there will be more poverty. By subsidizing people because they are unemployed, more unemployment will be created. Supporting single mothers out of tax funds will lead to an increase in single motherhood, illegitimacy, and divorce. In outlawing child labor, income is transferred from families with children to childless persons. As a result of the legal restriction on the supply of labor, wage rates will rise. Accordingly, the birth rate will fall. On the other hand, by subsidizing the education of children, the opposite effect is created. Income is transferred from the childless and those with few children to those with many children. As a result, the birth rate will increase. Yet then the value of children will again fall and birth rates will decline as a result of the so-called social security system. For in subsidizing retirees, the old out of taxes imposed on current income earners, the young, the institution of a family, the intergenerational bond between parents, grandparents, and children is systematically weakened. The old need no longer rely on the assistance of their children if they have made no provision for their own old age, and the young, with typically less accumulated wealth, must support the old, with typically more accumulated wealth, rather than the other way around, as is typical within families. Parents' wish for children and children's wish for parents will decline. Family breakups and dysfunctional families will increase, and provisionary action Saving and capital formation will fall while consumption rises. All right. And that literally, like, he just took that in that long-ass paragraph, took everything we talked about in the previous one, that one simple point, and mm-hmm. applied it and kind of shows how this can devastate things. Literally, he, he – I mean, I don't think he's pointed out anything that really anyone could really comp- disagree with. Really, I mean, I guess some people could. But, I mean, from an economic perspective, it makes sense. And – you know, it gets down to how this affects, you know, the cultural, the culture, uh, families, uh, you know, mm-hmm. once again, to kind of, we're seeing the theme here of how it's not as simple as just economics, money. And, uh, Oh, that like, it's not this simple. Oh, just the money, money affects things. Uh, money is a money is simply a, the medium of exchange, uh, that we use. that's supposed to denote a certain value that we attribute to it. Uh, so essentially it's value. Like, mm-hmm. and uh, like, if you were to apply that, you could, I could have this brush right here that I, uh, I apply value to me. To me, this is worth however much in my head. And, and the money is just simply a factor to kind of be able to quantify it and make it easier to be able to interact with in the world, essentially. So, yeah. And yeah, he's pointing out there that most of the incentives are set up uh, to uh, destroy the family unit, which I argue that the government is doing intentionally because the family unit is a competing institution to the government because Typically, um, you know, like, I guess like before a state even existed or in the absence of a state family and the people that are closest to you would be who you'd have to rely on for help if you needed it. And he is sort of getting into that there where like even the idea of there being social security is going to disincentivize children from uh, wanting to like, help out their parents in their old age. So you do see a lot of that. And then, you know, you sort of see, uh, I don't know where, where else I was going with that, but. Yeah. All right. Um, All right. As a result of subsidizing the malingerers, the neurotics, the careless, the alcoholics, the drug addicts, the AIDS infected, and the physically and mentally challenged, through insurance regulation and compulsory health insurance, there will be more illness, 
malingering, neuroticism, carelessness, alcoholism, drug addiction, AIDS infection, and physical and mental retardation. By forcing non-criminals, including the victims of crime, to pay for the imprisonment of criminals, rather than making criminals compensate their victims and pay the full cost of their own apprehension and incarceration, crime will increase. By forcing businessmen through affirmative action, non-discrimination programs, to employ more women, homosexuals, blacks, or other minorities than they would like to, there will be more employed minorities and fewer employers and fewer male Sorry, and fewer employers and fewer male, heterosexual, and white employment. By compelling private landowners to subsidize, protect endangered species residing on their land through environmental legislation, there will be more and better off animals and fewer and worse off humans. Yep. So, yeah. And he's just still laying it out. Uh, I don't really yeah. have anything. I mean, I guess some people might get butthurt about the statement about the women, the homosexuals, black minorities. Yeah. I mean, if you're upset about that, he's not really – nothing he said there was saying, I don't like women, homosexuals, blacks, or other minorities. He's simply saying by causing – by doing affirmative action, you increase – by doing that, you you subsidize their, their hiring. And then by the inverse property, you essentially reduce the hiring of all other categories. So, I mean, right. that's going to have an effect – uh, I mean, really, the idea is not to subsidize one or the other. The idea is to not hire based on, I don't know, sexuality or color of skin. Uh, right. You know, I mean, so generally the, speaking, a woman might have a hard time getting a job, I don't know, as a roofer. But, I mean, theoretically, if she were qualified and capable, you know, physically able to do it, mm -hmm. there's no reason why she shouldn't be able to do it. But she shouldn't get a job simply for having a vagina. That's silly. Right. Exactly. So that's the point there is that, yeah, I mean, in a, in a free market environment, people would be hired based on who is best qualified for that particular position, regardless yeah. of what they're and, and to bring up the and to bring up are. And to bring up the woman point, that will have sometimes have some effects on who gets hired. And even uh, even among uh, demographics such as race, because uh, I, I, I feel I wish I used to know more about this, but I know like I think it might be Sowell or somebody has broken down how certain uh, you know fields for some reason are extremely high in this minority or that minority or white people or what or low in this minority or low in that minority and it's not as simple as just because oh because they're black it's that sometimes certain cultural things come to play for some reason this culture tends to prefer this this career or that thing and and it just works out that way and the idea we should be like yeah. oh there are too many Indians in in in, in in the uh, tech support yeah in tech support or the medical field so we need to stop hiring indians that's silly like if, the, if indians want to go do that job and for some reason there's a shitload of indians doing it let them who gives a shit <laughs> like, so yeah yeah um and, but yeah i do like how he kind of lays out like uh some of these specific examples there in that paragraph because people might not really think of that otherwise unless you know they're told hey like this is what happens if these incentives are set up this way so he listed out um the healthcare thing where uh, if you are forcing people to have to uh, pay for like the healthcare of other people, that's going to incentivize people to take worse care of themselves. Like, Oh, I don't have to pay for my own, uh, you know, health problems. I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm now incentivized to, you know, what he said there, be an alcoholic, like treat my body like shit essentially, because others are going to pay for it when I have a health problem. So that's, bad it's setting up bad incentives there of course i kind of laughed that he he threw in there like you know aids and uh yeah. retardation I mean, which people get pissed about but. i mean to be fair you can kind of explain a good way to understand what he's saying there is say for example something like disability say there's a government program for disability and there mm. are these certain things you have to meet uh to be able to get it for example i don't know think of whatever given condition and if you have this condition you're applicable for the disability and if you apply for it you can get it Let's say, obviously, people are going to be incentivized to not want to work. Like, that's just generally speaking, especially if they can get, right. you know, about the same or, or you know, a little bit less or even more than mm -hmm. what they would if they didn't work. Obviously, yeah. they're going to choose not to work. Now, let's say this given condition is one of the many things you can, you can have to get disability. Now, let's say more people start, um, I don't know, they're going to be more apt to go to the doctor or more apt to complain about this given thing. People are going to tend to have more of this diagnosis. And even then then more people are going to flock to disability. Then probably 
uh, coalition groups are going to form and say, hey, disability is not inclusive enough. They should also include this this thing. And they're going to lobby them to include that. And they're like, oh, they don't pay us enough on disability. They're going to lobby for it to increase. And it goes on and on and on to the point where, like, it's not necessarily that technically more people became, like you said, I don't know, have AIDS or retarded or whatever given condition you're saying. But over time, you're incentivizing people to, I don't know, uh, come come with this condition to accept their benefits. And also you're likely to mm-hmm. probably decrease the, de- uh, to loosen the definition of what it is to be disabled. <laughs> so. right. Well, and we know that this has happened with um, like the health insurance companies have lobbied the government for uh, certain pieces of legislation. Of course, Obamacare being one of the biggest examples of that. And you have a situation where, you know, like the uh, requirement that health insurers uh, accept people with pre-existing conditions that is, you know, incentivizing. That's one of the things that's incentivizing like people to take less care of themselves because they know that they're going to be able to get health care because now these health insurers can't do that risk assessment and say, well, this person, you know, has already like mistreated themselves. Like they have all these health problems already. We can't afford to insure this person. Right. Yeah. So all the incentives are fucked up there. Uh, they're all, you know, towards like people, uh, taking less care of their health. And then he also mentioned uh, crime, you know, people are, where if people are subsidizing uh, law enforcement, essentially, uh, then you're going to have an increase in crime because of that. Uh, we're just talking about that because, uh, you, you know, essentially like you are paying uh, for uh, like that whole system really. Right. Mm-hmm. Or, or you're for, sorry, you're forcing others to pay for that entire system is what I mean to say. So, you know, if, if you were like a non-taxer, you'd be like, well, you know, I'll just, uh, you know, I'll, co- <laughs> I'll commit a crime right now, basically. Yeah. Uh, and then, um, oh yeah. The other thing was the, um, like the climate change reference where all of that type of thing, uh, is really all of those incentives are anti-human and they wind up being, I guess you could say pro-animal sort yeah. of in a way, but really they're yeah anti-human in a whole bunch of ways because they're just, completely against uh, like what humans would be doing. Otherwise, you know, the reduction in the use of fossil fuels, which we need to heat people's homes and keep them alive right now and give people power and all those types of things. All right. Most importantly, by compelling private property owners and slash or market income earners to subsidize politicians, political parties, and civil servants, politicians and government employees do not pay taxes, but are paid out of taxes. There will be less wealth formation, fewer producers, and less productivity, and ever more waste, parasites, and parasitism. Uh, I don't want to comment on that a whole lot, but just soak that in. Think about that because the whole point we were just making is about how things get subsidized, and there are these individuals within the government that literally produce nothing. So Mm -hmm. by incentivizing them, by subsidizing them, we create an economic incentive for more of them. All right. Yes. Businessmen. Capitalists and their employees cannot earn an income unless they produce goods or services which are sold in markets. The buyer's purchases uh, purchases are voluntary. By buying a good or service, the buyers demonstrate that they prefer this good or service over the sum of money that they must surrender in order to acquire it. In contrast, politicians, parties, and civil servants produce nothing which is sold in markets. No one buys government goods or services. I mean, maybe like lobbyists or like, you know, corruption type stuff, but you get the idea. Right. They are produced and costs are incurred to produce them, but they are not sold and bought. On the one hand, this implies it's impossible to determine their value and find out whether or not this value justifies their costs because no one buys them. No one actually demonstrates that he considers government goods and services worth their costs. And indeed, whether or not anyone attaches any value to them at all. From the viewpoint of economic theory, it is thus entirely illegitimate to assume, as is always done in national income accounting, that government goods and services are worth what it costs to produce them. And then to simply add this value to that of the normal privately produced goods and services to arrive at gross domestic product, for instance. Mm -hmm. It might as well be assumed that government goods and services are worth nothing, or even that they are not goods at all, but bads. And hence, the cost of politicians and the entire civil service should be subtracted from the total value of privately produced goods and services. Indeed, to assume this would be far more justified. 
For on the other hand, as to its practical implications, the subsidizing of politicians and civil servants amount to a subsidy to produce with little or no regard for the well-being of one's alleged consumers. And with much or sole regard instead for the well-being of the producers, i.e. the politicians and civil servants. Their salaries remain the same, whether their output satisfies consumers or not. Accordingly, as a result of the expansion of public sector employment, there will be increasing laziness, carelessness, incompetence, disservice, maltreatment, waste, and even destruction. At the same time, ever more arrogance, demagoguery, and lies. In parentheses, we work for the public good. This is such a good, good, good one. It really just kind of like, I don't know, rails home the point that, you know, the government in general is kind of an economic aberration, uh, you know, but go on. You were going to say something? Um, yeah. So, I mean, you had pointed out, yeah, before uh, you read that, which is a pretty good point that, yeah, he's talking about how the government, um, the existence of the government is uh, subsidizing non-production, essentially. That includes the government itself. So not only are you subsidizing, you know, just the people not working, but you're also, you know, that also includes the government. The government doesn't actually produce anything. Uh, and you could argue that they are also non-workers. Yeah. I do like the point. The point he's getting at in there is that essentially there's no uh, price mechanism when it comes to government. There's no, you don't buy or sell goods from them. It's like, mm-hmm. there's no way to determine their value. Yeah. I mean, theoretically, he does make the point that I guess depending on what the government does or doesn't do, uh, say something like healthcare or security, uh, probably is a good example. Uh, you could say there is economic value to it. The problem is that we can't determine right. what the economic value is because we don't have any sort of yes. metrics in place for that. We're just guessing. We're basing it off of roughly in our head kind of something equivalent. Um, but you also got to think they're kind of fucking up the entire, you know, what the value would be by their existence. Uh, by that they're encroaching on the market. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, it, it, and he kind of makes a point you can almost subtract it, which I, I don't know, it depends on the thing, really. Because I mean, there is definitely like, say, for example, um, say your local sheriff, I mean, you can make a case that there's value, economic value there. Like, let's be real. But the point, yeah. there is a point to be made that if there were no government and this was just privately done, that that would be done better. But, right. So yeah, I mean, value is subjective. Like, obviously, people are going to value things like, defense and healthcare and stuff like that, uh, which, you know, the government does provide, but of course they're not uh, providing it effectively. They're, they are providing it at a much higher cost than would be uh, provided otherwise. And as he's pointing out there uh, in that paragraph, uh, because everybody is forced to have to pay for it, regardless of how they provide it, like the, they are not uh, held accountable for it because they're going to get paid anyway. So they can just provide shitty quality and it can be at some, huge costs, uh, you know, relative to what it would be uh, if it was being provided in a free market scenario. So he's going over all that. He talks about the GDP a little bit and how it's a total bullshit metric as like all macroeconomics is just bullshit because it's all numbers that the government just kind of makes up and they can just throw in them what they want. And it's like, hey, we're providing, uh, you know, these goods and services. So that gets factored into GDP. It's like, yeah, that's, they're claiming that that is, uh sort of a measurement of wealth of the country, even if it is not. Yeah. Um, All right. Is there anything else in there? I don't know. There's a lot in that paragraph. Yeah, there's a lot. It's a good paragraph. Say there, but yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Other than that. And then, you know, like the, um, there's almost like he's hitting on like the uh, labor theory of value almost there a little bit too, because he's also basically saying that the government is going to be providing some things. You're being forced to pay for these things that you might not even buy at all. You know, you might not use it. You might not. Yeah, I mean, it. I, I mean, in my where I'm at, the way I live, if the government just capsized right now and it no longer existed, and but we were in some sort of situation where things were generally kind of normalish. I mean, especially for me, I live out in the country. I probably wouldn't hire any sort of security. I have no need for it. I have literally never right. in my life had a situation that I can think of to where a police officer provided any sort of substantial service. And even if I could pick through my brain and think of one, I bet you I could think of more examples where they fucked me over. So, and it's not that I've had a lot of run-ins with the cops either. So like, yeah, you know, you, this is just you, a normal person's life. You know? Yeah. And you might be paying for like roads that you never actually use, paying yeah. for public transportation that you never actually use, you know, all those different things. All right. 
Uh, after less than 100 years of democracy and redistribution, the, predict the predictable results are in. The reserve fund that was inherited from the past is apparently exhausted. And this was in 2000 or whatever. For several decades, since the late 1960s or, early 19, or the early 1970s, the real, sta real standards of living has stagnated or even fallen in the West. The public debt and the cost of the existing social security and healthcare system have brought on the prospect of an imminent economic meltdown. At the same time, almost every form of undesirable behavior, unemployment, that's kind of a weird wording there. Almost every form of undesirable behavior, unemployment, welfare dependency, negligence, recklessness, incivility, psychopathy, hedonism, and crime has increased, and social conflict and societal breakdown have risen to dangerous heights. If current trends continue, it is safe to say that the Western welfare state, social democracy, will collapse just as Eastern, Russian-style socialism collapsed in the late 1980s. Yeah, I don't know if you have much to add to that. I mean, it's more of a bookend on before. It's kind of going on, kind of, you know, kind of he pointed out the, how the, the prior that uh, all these things have economic, create economic incentives by subsidizing things. And in mm -hmm. that paragraph, he just kind of points up, yeah, see, see, here's the actual historical indication or modern indication of what I've been saying, essentially. So. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure if there's anything to add to that. But yeah, yeah. like even in 2000, he's talking about essentially how we like, are on the verge of uh, having no money left uh, in social security because it's a Ponzi scheme and it gets used for other things. It is not just sitting there in a lockbox or whatever they claim. Uh, so that money's going to be gone. He's already saying, yeah, that in 2000, the system was like on the verge of collapse. He's pointing out that uh, it happened to the Soviet union. And I, I think of course it happened more quickly and dramatically there because it was so, I mean, it was communist, uh, where, you know, I mean, you could argue there are certainly communist components that we have here in the U.S., and I do agree that we are headed towards a collapse. I think it is, you know, a slower drive towards that because the U.S. has built up so much wealth prior to being in this state. Yep. Uh, however, economic collapse does not automatically lead to improvement. Matters can become worse rather than better. What is necessary besides a crisis are ideas, correct ideas, and men capable of understanding and implementing them once the opportunity arises. Ultimately, the course of history is determined by ideas, be they true or false, and by men acting upon and being inspired by true or false ideas. The current mess is also the result of ideas. It is the result of the overwhelming acceptance by public opinion of the idea of democracy. As long as this acceptance prevails, a catastrophe is unavoidable, and there can be no hope for improvement even after its arrival. On the other hand, as soon as the idea of democracy is recognized as false and vicious, and ideas can, in principle, be changed almost instantaneously, a catastrophe can be avoided. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I don't know if you have anything to add on that. No, I mean, we've, yeah. some we've touched on a lot, although, I mean... It, uh, the idea of the, the the ideas and how important they are, I don't feel like he's touched on a ton in this. Just a, a small handful of times. This is one of them. He's just yeah. kind of pointing out that, like, this, I don't know, this is almost the collapsitarian. He's kind of, like, poking at the collapsitarians right here a little bit, kind of like the idea of, like, oh, if you're just rooting for a collapse, that may not work for you. Uh, you know, right. I, I sometimes describe myself as a collapsitarian, but I'm coming from a, a – my, my perspective is more that as you build what will come, the collapse will come quicker. Like that's just how it works because as you're building the new system, the old system yeah. will fall away. So in a sense that it's collapsed, but if you're just saying fuck the old system and not worried about some sort of new system, whether it be, you know, uh, just free trade amongst individuals or what have you. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it could be bad. And, and the, he's making yes. the point here that the huge point is that we really, really push this idea that democracy is horseshit. So that whenever a collapse does happen, that these ideas are adopted because this will be a huge flux point. And if you do not have that, it, it just as easily could go the other way and become way worse. Yeah. So, if we had a collapse right now, we would still – yeah, we would be fucked. Like, I, although people say that though and I don't 100% agree because I think there's always windows of opportunity in every major thing. So yes, overall – I think if it happened this very moment, we fucked, but there'd probably be windows of it, like areas where things, you know, end up better. But yeah. obviously the idea is to have some sort of um, 
overall public opinion that causes at least most, if not even all. Mm-hmm. Although I feel like, you know, all is this kind of a silly idea that like everywhere right. would be better. Let's be real. Places yeah. like Cali, New York, probably going to stay like shit like for mm-hmm. a long time. And it's going to take a while for them to learn their lesson. But certain areas, you know, like maybe like a New Hampshire or Florida, like Tennessee's. I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, so, right. So, yeah, yeah I mean, he, he refers to the uh, Soviet Union as having collapsed. So like if the U.S. was to take that route, I think, yeah, we would not be as fucked. Like, well, I guess depending on like where you are, but uh, that would be more of like what Hoppe would advocate for the decentralization where you want this like splitting up so that people that, uh, you know, believe in a certain thing are going to sort of congregate together, you know, in certain areas. And then you want to be in one of those areas. Like you were just talking about New Hampshire, you know, Florida, whatever, like places that uh, are more sane than others. If we want to call it that, you know, a lot of people will call it the balkanization of um, the U S as well in reference to, Yugoslavia breaking down into, uh, you know, separate, separate countries. Uh, so yeah, like something like that. All right. Um, the central task, the central task of those wanting to turn the tide and prevent an outright breakdown is the delegitimation of the idea of democracy as the root cause of the present state of progressive decivilization. To this purpose, one should first point out that it is difficult to find many proponents of democracy in the history of political theory. Almost all major thinkers had nothing but contempt for democracy. Even the founding fathers of the U.S. nowadays considered the model of a democracy were strictly opposed to it. Without a single exception, they thought of democracy as nothing but mob rule. They considered themselves to be members of a natural aristocracy. And rather than a democracy, they advocated an aristocratic republic. Furthermore, even among the few theoretical defenders of democracy, such as Rousseau, for instance, it is almost impossible to find anyone advocating democracy for anything but extremely small communities, villages, or towns. Indeed, in small communities where everyone knows everyone else personally, most people must acknowledge that the position of the haves is typically based on their superior personal achievement just as the position of the have-nots finds its typical explanation in their personal deficiencies and inferiority. Under these circumstances, it is far more difficult to get away with trying to loot other people and their personal property to one's advantage. In distinct contrast, in large territories encompassing millions or even hundreds of millions of people where the potential looters do not know their victims and vice versa, the human desire to enrich oneself at another's expense is subject to little or no restraint. Yep, and this is why the bigger it gets, the easier it is to do monstrosities because the idea is that, say for example, a genocide in Yemen, it means even for me and you, as bad as this may sound, like I've seen the videos, I've seen the awful stuff, I feel I'm like this is awful, but at the same time, it's it's kind of just an abstraction. Like I've never met a starving Yemeni kid, it's never affected me in any personal way. Uh, these are just abstractions. So it's easy for a government like ours that's become the largest government on the earth to just completely fuck over these people. And I mean, yeah, like, like well, yeah, don't get me wrong. I mean, you are both like that. Don't do that. But like, I, I, we're not like raising up arms right now to stop it because I mean, now if this was a small village that for some reason was doing some, such monstrosities, I, I it may be easier for a group to rise up or or to quash it in one way or another because, you know, and, and also because there's more of a ingrained feeling of like, whoa, that's fucked up because this is an actual thing we're seeing. This is two villages over that we're murdering these people or whatever. And it's like, right. that's not cool. You know, whereas it's just some country on the other side of the world that's done by people that you don't really know. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, like it, it's, it's just such a far away concept. That's not really, you know, yeah. kind of doesn't really have much to do with your everyday life, really. Like yeah. aside from you know economic and you know abstraction and how it affects you personally, and then you know so far as a moral abstraction, how it affects these people that you'll never meet and really never probably meet anyone who does it to these people either. So, right. So this, yeah, this is why you know decentralization uh, is a good idea and is better than the opposite. Where he's saying even in the case of democracy, that would be the case because. When you were decentralized like that, uh, uh, you know, it's just human nature that you were going to care the most about the people that are closest to you, your family, your neighbors, your community, whatever it is like that. 
just is the case. That is a truth of, you know, human existence. That's who you're going to care about the most. And then, uh, you know, that leads to the fact that like the people that sort of uh, like might get into like leadership positions, like those people are going to be, if those people are people that you know, you know, personally, then, uh, and they know you personally, like they're going to be able to get away with like doing less evil to you and to, you know, the people uh, in that community. And also um, like, they're probably going to be more likely to be somebody that has like earned that position because you know them, oh, they know, you know, they're really good at this particular thing, whatever. They're more of like the natural elite. So all of that becomes more the case, the more decentralized you get. Yep. If that makes sense. More importantly, it must be made clear again that the idea of democracy is immoral as well as uneconomical. As for the moral status of majority rule, it must be pointed out that it allows for A and B to band together to rip off C. C and A in turn join to rip off B, and then B and C conspiring against A and so on. This is not justice but a moral outrage. And rather than treating democracy and Democrats with respect, they should be treated with open contempt and ridiculed as moral frauds. On the other yes. hand, as for the economic quality of democracy, it must be stressed relentlessly that it is not democracy but private property, production, and voluntary exchange that are the ultimate sources of human, human civilization and prosperity. In particular, contrary to, uh, contrary to widespread myths, it needs to be emphasized that the lack of democracy had essentially nothing to do with the uh, bankruptcy of Russian-style socialism. It was not the selection principle for politicians that constituted socialism's problem. It was politics and political decision-making as such. Instead mm -hmm. of each private producer deciding independently what to do with particular resources as under a regime of private property and contractualism with fully or partially socialized factors of production, each decision requires someone else's permission. It is irrelevant to the producer how these, those giving permissions are chosen. What matters to him is that permission must be sought as, at all. As long as this is the case, the incentive of producers to produce is reduced and impoverishment will ensue. Private property is as incompatible democracy as it is with any other form of political rule. Rather than democracy, justice as well as economic efficiency require a pure and unrestricted private property society. An anarchy of production in which no one rules anybody and all producers' relations are voluntary and thus mutually beneficial. That's a good one. That was a good one. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not sure there's a whole lot to add to that. I know like in his example uh, in the paragraph before that uh, big one, you know, which – is an argument that uh, people that favor democracy tend to not uh, listen to at all. But like, I mean, I think it's a good argument against democracy. It's just that, hey, all you're doing here is voting on something and saying, you know, in this case, like if B and C both vote to rob A, well, then that wins and they rob A. Yeah. So, you know, democracy, obviously, uh, it will lead to immorality, as he's saying here. So. Hell yeah. I'm going to have to clip that little, that one part where they're about the uh, fucking open contempt and ridiculous moral frauds. They got my dick hard a little bit. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah. I, I like, uh, yeah, his aggressive uh, wording on some of these. I don't know if we, do you have anything else to add on that? No, I just want to say this again. This is not justice, but a moral outrage. And rather than treating democracy and Democrats with respect, they should be treated with open contempt and ridiculed as moral frauds. I love yes. that so much. <laughs> yeah. So good. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. Let's, let's keep it. Let's keep it moving. Actually, I'll let you f uh, finish this part out since the only other page. So lastly. Yeah. This is a quick uh, chapter actually. It's yeah. Yeah, 12 pages or whatever and huge amounts of footnotes here. So lastly, as for strategic considerations in order to approach the goal of a non-exploitative social order, i.e. private property anarchy, the idea of majoritarianism should be turned against democratic rule itself. Under any form of governmental rule, including a democracy, the ruling class, politicians, and civil servants represents only a small proportion of the total population. While it is possible that 100 parasites may lead a comfortable life on the products of 1,000 hosts, 1,000 parasites cannot live off of 100 hosts. 
Based on the recognition of this fact, it would appear possible to persuade a majority of the voters that it is adding insult to injury to let those living off of other people's taxes have a say in how high these taxes are and to thus decide democratically to take the right to vote away from all government employees and everyone who receives government benefits, whether they are welfare recipients or government contractors. So, I mean, a lot of these points, you know, he makes throughout this book, like, you know, he's continuing to talk about obviously how, you know, private property system is obviously the best, uh, you know, yeah. adhering to actual property rights, of course. Uh, and mean, then I he's don't... talking about here that uh, the people still uh, outweigh, like the ruled, uh, outnumber the ruling, I should say. So he's saying that, you know, it should be possible to persuade enough of those people to, uh, I don't know, think in a different way, I suppose. Uh, yeah. Because he's saying here that if you, if that wasn't the case, if the ruling class was outnumbering uh, the ruled, or I guess if the non-producers were uh, outnumbering the producers, that you wouldn't, you wouldn't have any net production anymore. It would all be gone. Yeah. Which uh, he is getting at, at the end of that paragraph, the idea, you know, like you're saying, to kind of use democracy against itself. You get enough people... You know the idea that the um, that we out, out outnumber the parasites. So the idea would be to possibly do something. And I don't know if he's touched on this before. I feel like he has. He definitely will later. This is a big crux of his shit with uh, what must be done. His you know Hoppe's praxis. Uh, he's yeah. getting at the idea of essentially not allowing people who live off of taxes to be able to vote essentially right. or have any say whatsoever. And that's kind of what he's getting at, the idea that we can get enough people to get together and kind of whip up outrage of like, hey, look at all these people living off of you. And that yeah. they then get to make decisions about, you know, their income or what have you when they're just living off the teat. Now, I would right. I would put out here because if we were talking about this concept on a federal level, I'd laugh at you because it's, it's ridiculous. The idea that you're going to get enough people on a federal level to come together and that we're going to go through the proper channels and we're going to cause it so that. I don't know, politicians, cops, military, postmen, whatever, they're not allowed to vote. Like the yeah. idea that that would get through on a federal level is laughable. Even if you could get mm -hmm. the people together, the idea that, you know, you'd be able to go through the proper channels, get up for a vote, get politicians to, you know, you know write this uh, language or, or this law or whatever, it's just ridiculous. But now if you're getting on an uber local level, different story, which is what Hoppe is proposing. And uh, that's, I think there's something to that. You know, if you can do that on your own local level, more power to you. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm still, this is one of those ones that like up in the air, I've said for a long time, it's Konkin or Hoppe, one of the two. I'm torn. I, I struggle to find much issues with, with Hoppe's concept of doing it on a localized level. Uh, I mean, I have thoughts that like maybe like way off future, maybe not the greatest, but it's, it's like, it's the, the, one of the best practices, like two of the best, like uh, for me, it's Konkin or Hoppe. Those are the best practices in my opinion. So, and I, I don't feel like there's really any debating it personally, but so like, and I always kind of, you know, go back and forth, you know, between the two, uh, you know, kind of arguing with myself how it works, but uh, there's definitely something to that. Uh, there's something to the, you know, on the super local level changing things, you know, where you actually have say and things can actually, actually make a difference. So, yeah. Yeah. Obviously yeah. I'm definitely on the hopper train and yeah, as you were uh pointing out or alluding to there uh, and Hoppe is mentioning here that yes, obviously the people that are receiving the tax money are totally incentivized to vote, to receive more of it. So yeah. he is suggesting that we don't allow those people to vote. And yeah. I agree. Yeah. Which is funny when you first hear this idea, it sounds so ridiculous, but then when you think about it, you're like, Oh yeah. But it's because we've been so inundated with this idea of democracy that every, you know, one person, one vote, you know, like the, this is somehow a moral good or something. Right. And, and this is why I love the idea of the repeal of the 19th and how it gets people offended. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I don't know, first off, like, I mean, not to go on a huge change about the 19th. It's like the idea that you're entitled to a vote is ridiculous. Like the idea anyone's entitled to a vote whatsoever is ridiculous. Yeah. So yeah. Voting rights are yeah. not a thing. You do not have the right to participate in democracy. You do not have the right to vote away the rights of others. Yes. And so the idea that, okay, like say for example, the 19th, the idea that women can't vote. Okay. I don't know. That probably wouldn't be my first go-to. My first go-to would probably, if I was like restricting voting rights to try to make some sort of positive change for what I want, 
Uh, that probably wouldn't be my first thing. It probably would. My first thing would be Wahapa, this, you know, proposal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. pretty much so, the same. Yeah, or yeah, I would, I would limit it to yeah, like uh, I don't know, landowners or something like that. Yeah, landowners, yeah. and you can't get any sort of government assistance whatsoever. Yeah, and then today you can vote. Uh, but now there's also an argument for the women thing because it's like it, I, it's not a matter of like are you a woman or are you man. It's not a sexism thing. It's just a simple of. If we're looking at this group and we're looking at that group, which do they, way do they vote and which way do would I which way would I prefer people to vote? If you look at the general voting block of women over the years, it typically isn't very favorable towards what I would want. Not that the men voting block is much better, but it's slightly better. So if I'm going to if I as some grand arbiter is restricting voting rights and you quote unquote rights because they're not even a fucking right, uh, you know, democracy is a sham. Uh, if I'm trying to orchestrate things to my doing, yeah, that, that, I mean, that, sure, I, I wouldn't have any any qualms about it, and it wouldn't be some woman hating thing. It'd just be like, you know, if I just look at the stats of what you guys, this group voting block is more likely to vote for. That's not what I want them to vote for. So like, it's really that simple. And it's like I don't have some magical belief in democracy. So people be like, oh my god, you're trying to uh, rig the things to your benefit. Yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's exactly what I would be wanting to do because. I don't believe in democracy. If the only way I would ever in any way try to use democracy would be towards my ends. So like, yeah, exactly. Like, exactly. It, yeah. So the, the, it, it, that's why it's a funny one. Cause people get offended and you're like, it's not because you're a woman. <laughs> it's because democracy is horseshit. And if you look at your voting block, and if I was to cancel off some voting blocks, that'd be one of the ones high up on the chopping list. So yes. <laughs> Um, but it's not even really probably in the top five, if I'm going to be honest. So it's just maybe, maybe like my e career there at the bottom. It's close, but yeah. All right. Let's finish out this last paragraph. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, in addition, in conjunction with this strategy, it is necessary to recognize the overwhelming importance of secession and secessionist movements. If majority decisions are right, then the largest of all possible majorities a world majority and a democratic world government must be considered ultimately right with the consequences predicted at the outset of this chapter. In contrast, secession always involves the breaking away of smaller from larger populations. It is thus a vote against the principle of democracy and majoritarianism. The further the process of secession proceeds to the level of small regions, cities, city districts, towns, villages, and ultimately individual households, and voluntary associations of private households and firms, the more difficult it will become to maintain the current level of redistributive policies. At the same time, the smaller the territorial units, the more likely it will be that a few individuals, based on the popular recognition of their economic independence, outstanding professional achievement, morally impeccable personal life, superior judgment, courage, and taste, will rise to the rank of natural, voluntarily acknowledged elites and lend legitimacy to the idea of a natural order of competing, non-monopolistic, and freely, voluntarily, financed peacekeepers, judges, and overlapping jurisdictions as exists even now in the arena of international trade and travel. A pure private law society as the answer to democracy and any other form of political coercive rule. All right, and that's that, folks. You got anything to add to that one? That's more um, of a bookend. There wasn't a whole lot in there, really. I mean, I kind of like how he um, he basically talks about how, you know, well, we're anti-democracy here, and uh, sort of democracy taken to its logical conclusion would mean the largest majority that you can get, which is the entire world population, and therefore a global democracy or a global government so that the answer is the exact opposite of that which is secession all the way down to the individual yeah. so i kind of like how he put that in that paragraph i almost wonder if he was making a point too and comparing and contrasting about the idea of democracy and if majority re uh, decisions were right and then kind of like creating a paradox and like if you vote for secession and it actually goes through like and the idea that's also the opposite. That's like kind of this weird paradox. We were voting against democracy. I think in that sense. previous paragraph, he was kind of saying that. Yeah, yeah. that it's sort of like how uh, you see, like, sort of like the regime. I guess getting uh, worried that like Donald Trump will win office or something like that. So they promote democracy, you know, all over the place here. But then they also are are afraid of it at the same time. 
So it's kind of this interesting, uh, you know, you have both of those dynamics going on there. Even though, yes, democracy is bad, it is also possible to use it to your advantage. Like you said, you could you could potentially use democracy to get rid of democracy in a way if you have a majority of people that don't believe in it. Yeah. Well, all right, man, let's get the hell out of here. This is a fun chapter, uh, one of our shorter ones, but it was still kind of dense. Uh, you want to go ahead and drop your plugs, and we'll get the hell out of here, man. Yeah, uh, Tower Gang Toad on Twitter. I am Toad from Tower Gang, of course. That is the most offensive uh, comedy podcast in the world, in existence. We are on Wednesday nights at 9, 11 p.m. Eastern. Uh, we just had a really wild episode last week where uh, I finally told a ridiculous story of mine uh, that I think only Cole knew about before that. And I respect um, you more for it. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, well, thank you. Uh, and uh, yeah, this week we uh, are going to have uh, Leonardo Joni, the comedian, on with us this week. And we'll do some more uh, fun stuff this week and talk. Uh, we'll have some other uh, crazy stories. Uh, so that, uh, that show is me, Jose, Cole, a.k.a. Fat Dave, Clint from Liberty Lockdown, Top Lobster, and sometimes but not usually Reed Coverdale. Because he is uh, off uh, fixing power lines again. So, yep. And uh, like I like I said earlier, we're going on Timcast soon. And by we, I mean it yes. looks like Clint and Top Lobster. And if we can get a third, there's a chance we can get a third. Be Fat Dave. That seems to be the mix that we're talking. And if we get a second, it'll be me, Reed, and like and probably Toad if we can get a third. So that. that <laughs> We don't have this perfectly worked out for the second one. Let's just kind of roughly, because uh, we have heard murmurs that, that you know if we do well in the first one, they'll let us bring more or slash the rest. Yeah, but so if it's three groups of two, then it's me and Cole last. Yes, yeah, that's what we've decided as a group. <laughs> I mean, I'm like torn. I, I, I've mentioned this before. I'm torn between having you guys go second and having you guys go last. Cole and I are good men. We've done shows where, uh, where we had to keep ourselves uh, restrained. We can do it. Yeah. But uh, if you do want to get a vibe of what will be going on on TimCast, I have tomorrow. I mean, if you're watching this, if you're a patron, then it'll be tomorrow. If not, it'll be the 27th. It'll already be out when this comes out. But I have uh, I have me, Top Lobster, Clint Russell, and I'll have Charlie Robinson uh, on of the Macro Aggressions podcast and the Four Pony Boys so you'll get a kind of rough idea of the kind of vibe you'll probably be getting because they'll be top and Clint, uh, you know, as opposed to the whole crew. Uh, I've been debating kicking around, maybe hitting up uh, hitting up Cole, see if he wants to join. That way they can get a little practice as a group just in case Cole's able to come. Uh, you know, kind of work on their, their their vibe as just the three of them. Uh, but I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Um, I'm debating it. I'm debating hitting up Cole, see if he's available. But, uh, yeah, either way, uh, yeah, definitely check that out. A lot of fun stuff coming, a lot of cool stuff coming. Uh, this show's probably, you know, assuming we don't get uninvited with it, we got big things coming for the show, yeah. uh, for tower gang. Um, you know, the yeah, show as well too. Hopefully I'll get a little bit of a bump if I end up showing up. Uh, but yeah, uh, this is a no way Jose show. You can find me on YouTube, all the major, all podcasters, obviously as well. Follow me on Twitter, Twitter at senior Jose 2020. You can follow me on Facebook too. If you want Jose Kelly some, I don't really ever do anything there, but whatever. It's a backup in case I got nuked. If you want to support me monetarily, patreon.com, no way Jose 2020. If you can't support me monetarily, just do me a favor. Tell a friend, like, share, subscribe, comment, all that good stuff. Just whatever you can. Uh, get get the word out there. Go support my other show too, Tower Gang, uh, if you're into comedy. Uh, yeah, join yeah. the Tower Gang Patreon at patreon.com slash Tower Gang Pod. And uh, uh, subscribe to the Rumble as well so that we can start streaming there, which is also Tower Gang Pod over there. Yeah, Rumble for sure. We want to get that Rumble moving. Uh, but yeah, with that, we appreciate everyone who uh, who watches this. Uh, with that, we are out, man. Uh, we'll be sure to have another one in I don't know, a week or so, probably roughly. But uh, thanks, everyone. We're out. Peace.